on the Dallas Opera Network. You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm your host, Weston Williams, joined this week by Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, and Ashley Hardgrave. All right, an NFL defensive end just came out as gay, and we're celebrating Pride with a look at gayness in opera. Isn't that a little redundant, Oliver? Plus, in the two-minute drill, we talk about winners in Cardiff and France, but not in Scotland. Stay tuned to find out why. And hey, if you're watching on the Dallas Opera Network, check out the full episode by subscribing to our podcast. And without further ado, who's this new gay football player for Oliver to date? (laughs) Well, both Matt and I put it into our notes because it happened right before we started recording. Would you like to talk about it, Matina Navratilova, or shall I? (laughs) Yes, by the time you're hearing this, it's breaking news from three days ago. Uh, But just before we recorded, uh, the Las Vegas Vegas Raiders defensive end Carl Nassib came out as gay, which makes him the first active NFL player to come out while playing in the league. Um, It's like the middle of a game. Yeah, it's like he knew this was our topic for tonight. One, But he's not just talking the talk, guys. He's going to walk the walk because he also announced that he's going to be donating $100,000 to the Trevor Project, which is this amazing organization that aims to prevent suicide among LGBT plus youth. So, you know, we can all snap for that. We absolutely can. You know, we could also snap for the track and field Olympic trials that were all happening this weekend. Who's your favorite right now? Matina, who is it? I got to give my shout out to Allison Felix because she is qualifying for her fifth Olympic Games. She's been on the team for every Olympic since Athens. Uh, (laughs) And this is even just a couple years after she uh, gave birth to her daughter through a life-threatening pregnancy. And I think I read that she's the most decorated women in track and field history and stands a chance to become the most decorated athlete in track and field history. So let's we're pulling for her in Tokyo. I'm worn out just sitting here doing this uh, this hosting position. Let's talk some opera. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. So I guess as the resident gay uh, on the team, uh, I'm going to introduce this segment. Uh, It is June 2021, believe it or not, and Pride Month is coming to a close. And we just wanted to spend a couple minutes with our dear listeners, with you all. Talk about how gay opera is. <laughs> and, and it goes way back. It really does. It goes as far back as the late 17th century in the court of Louis XIV, where um, the first French opera composer, dubbed opera composer, was none other than the Italian Jean-Baptiste Lully, who was a friend of Louis XIV. They met dancing <laughs> out, you know, as you do. Oh, he, they were they were dancing buddies in the club with, as with, you your, said. Yes, with your French exactly. king pal. <laughs> and uh, shortly after appearing together in some dance, um, Luli was appointed as a court musician of instrumental music, and eventually he w- became the opera composer of France. And nobody else was allowed to compose opera by law. Yes. No one else. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> no, that's not a joke. That's not a joke. <laughs> Um, so the first, you know, French operas, which were really a reaction uh, to Italian opera and a, in a way, a rejection of Italian opera, uh, were composed by an Italian, <laughs> Jean-Baptiste Lully. And uh, this is repertoire that is very close to my heart, as many of you know. And um, one of the gayest experiences I had in my life uh, happened to be with somebody who was a scholar <laughs> of this of this repertoire, but that's a different story. But another gay experience um, was my first time going to Boston Early Music Festival. I forget exactly what year it was, but the show was Luli's Siche. And um, just being at Banff and being um, around, you know, all these people who are passionate about early music and seeing all of these international uh, organizations and ensembles come to Boston to perform Um, and going to like late night concerts. But really the thing that like pushed me over the edge and made me fall in love with Bem forever was just the opening tableau of Luli's Cichet. Uh, And I just remember the curtain raising and like seeing 
the set and seeing the you know the tableau of the first singers we're about to sing and the dancers in place and the opening line sung by Teresa Wakeham and just feeling overwhelmed with the beauty. These operas are so gorgeous, but they're gorgeous in a way that's like it's overwhelming how beautiful they are. It's like mm. it's like you saw the movie Marie Antoinette with um Kirsten Dunst, Sophia Coppola. Coppola. Yeah. You can just imagine just like the decadence, just everything is just so much, you know, there's so much lace and so much sugar and extra. so much, you know, extra as the kids yeah. would say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we like that, uh, the gays. Uh, <laughs> another thing that is very specific to uh, French Baroque opera is a voice type, or it's really a, a range in the tenor register that they call the haute contre, uh, which is sort of different than what we think of how tenors should sing. So like that when we think Italian tenor, which is really a concept that comes like around the time of Rossini, uh, we think of the idea of, of tenors voices becoming more powerful and more exciting mm. the higher they go. Whereas the old contra is sort of the opposite. The higher the voice goes, the more sweet it becomes. And they use a voix technique so that you hear a lot of um, head resonance in their upper register as opposed to anything that feels connected to like the chest register. And like, that's what's exciting for us when we hear like a tenor sing loud. It's like you hear like just this possibility that it's going to break because it, how could the vocal cords You're riding on that knife's edge. That, that, yeah, that much noise. <laughs> Whereas with the old contra, you'd never expect them to crack because it's just so naturally high. Oh, oh, like that, you know? and <laughs> Just like gets, that. <laughs> yeah, just like that. It just gets sweeter and hootier the higher it goes. And there is a danger of the old contra uh, singers to sound a little bit nasal, but there are some really good ones out there that I love, namely Serial OVT, by the way. I love you if you're hearing mm. this, that offer for marriage is still standing. <laughs> <laughs> so um, Opera Atelier, our friends in Toronto, also specialize in French Baroque music. And before I talk about the clip we're about to hear, uh, this is from their 2004 production of the opera Per Se uh, by Lully. Uh, which is the same thing as the Clash of the Titans. Um, you know, uh, Perseus has to... Lots res- of CG, you know. Yeah, Perseus has to rescue... <laughs> it's, no, it's claymation back then. Oh, yeah, that's right. It's so yeah. the, 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 yeah. the skeletons. <laughs> uh, Perseus has to rescue Andromeda by um, using Medusa's head to uh, stun the Kraken, you know. That's basically the opera in a nutshell. Uh, and, of course, Perseus is sung by an contra. And he's sweet and delicate, and he holds Medusa's head like with very soft hands, you know, and like very and everything French. is just everything is just very graceful, you know. And that to me is like a, a representation, a different type of masculinity, you know. And that's why maybe why I like it so much because it feels like you can be a warrior, but you can also be a lover, and you can also, you know, trill <laughs> on every note. <laughs> it's delicate. It's des- delicate masculinity. So. Uh, we're going to hear a very camp scene from this opera. And I just love this opera in particular because when I was a little boy, I think one of the first homoerotic feeling I ever had was watching that movie Clash of the Titans because of, I forget, was it Will Chamberlain? I don't remember the actor who was I, dressed I don't in... think it was Will Chamberlain. <laughs> I forget Famed his name. Basketball Richard player. Chamberlain? Richard Chamberlain, is that his name? Yeah. Of the Thornbirds? Is that who you're going for? <laughs> Um, can somebody look it up while I try to describe who is the actor that played Perseus in, in Clash of the Titans? I'm on uh, it. You keep going. Yeah, but you know they have that outfit that like the gladiators wear, which sort of looks like uh, a Harry Hamlin. Harry Hamlin. That's not, not a Chamberlain, <laughs> even a little bit. Not even Chamberlain adjacent. Okay. Um, so we looked up the name of that outfit, and apparently it's called a Terugis. Ter- Something like um, that. And you'll think. know exactly what that outfit looks like when you see it. And you look it up and that's P-T-E-R-U-G-E-S. And like guys wearing that outfit, it's like, oh, you just want to catch a glimpse. You know, right now, if you're not watching the video, this one like, oh, can you just get under slightly, you know, because, you know, there's stuff flapping in the wind over there, you know, so <laughs> those lines that, are not girded. <laughs> yes. So that movie made me just titillated me as a child. And to think that there is an operatic version of it. Uh, which is great. So we're going to hear this very camp scene uh, because Baroque opera can be camp of um, Mercury uh, trying to put Medusa to sleep with his lullaby. 
And uh, Mercury is here sung by another fantastic haute contra tenor named Colin Ainsworth. And Medusa is cast as a baritone, and that's actually in the original score. And we will Amazing. hear we will hear Olivier Lacaire. So from the 2004 production of Per Se from Apatelier uh, with Tafelmusik as the band. We'll talk about Tafelmusik later on in this episode. In this case, led by Hervé Niquet. We heard Colin Ainsworth as Mercury and Olivier Lacaire resisting falling asleep as Medusa. <laughs> Weston, you're up. I'm up. Here we go. So uh, one of the things I like about opera is the fact that it's been around for so long and it's seen so many cultural changes that it's a good reminder uh, here in the 21st century that the gender binary and heteronormativity have not always been a thing. Uh, and I think that, uh, you know, it, it, it just it's one of those things. The first time you learn about Castrati, whether it's from your favorite opera podcast or a, or a, like a, a music history course, it immediately breaks your notion of what we think the norms of gender are. Um, and, and I think that's just that's just absolutely great, because as soon as you uh, basically every uh, Castrati was like a rock star of their era. The uh, the gender was fluid. The sexualities were fluid. Um, and I think that the fact that the, the mark of the Castrati left such a, a huge footprint on the rest of the history of opera. It's it's very it's very, very easy to find your representation in there, um, even if it's not necessarily as explicit as you'd like it to be. Um, and uh, I think uh, the, the, the big example there is like pants rolls, because obviously you have. Uh, once castrati start to become more rare, they keep getting banned all over Europe. You start to want to replace those uh, those voice roles with women. And then all of a sudden you have women loving women in these roles, which is very exciting. Um, and uh, so, and occasionally uh, and eventually, you know, you have composers who are able to compose for castrati specifically and also do specifically pants roles. And that's just such an interesting thing to me. It's not interchangeable. It's not a replacement because of of practicality it's an artistic choice so when you get to like the time of mozart and you're doing like you know uh marriage of figaro and you have cherubino um in this pants role not just you know comedically but also like being very explicitly sexual <laughs> i think it's really really cool and it's it, every 
woman uh, a woman who loves women that I know that are also into opera just love love Carabino <laughs> um, for for a number of reasons and one of those reasons might be the fact that it put Isabel Leonard in a in a in a suit uh, and streamed them uh, streamed her live to uh, you know <laughs> audiences all across the the world um, and if you're listening to the uh, podcast version we'll play a little bit of her singing non si più in a moment. Um, but it really is, it really has this genuineness to it. It's not just a joke. It's not just, oh, I'm a woman. Isn't it funny that I'm talking about uh, loving women? Uh, it is, there's a serious there. there there's, this, there's this genuine, you know, icy fire and passion that comes out of Carabino and characters like Carabino um, that are, that is really, really interesting and specific and exactly where you want to go. Uh, if you are um, a lesbian or bisexual woman in the, you know, in the 18th century where you couldn't really get that representation really anywhere else. And I just think that's neat. No, I gave permission for audiences to see two women together on stage. Exactly. Behaving and one way. of them was wearing pants. Even. Yes. Exactly. And, and there was even that nudity scene for Carabino, which you can only imagine, you know, you weren't, they probably didn't show it back then, but everybody thought, oh my God, behind that screen is nudity. Just if we could, <laughs> just like me and my Class of the Titans, uh, Teruji's outfit, you know, just like want to be able to like see around the <laughs> just corner. Just like you little know? Oliver. Yeah. Uh, but I just want to add something that is apropos to both of our uh, ideas about queerness and opera. The old contra, because it's a high-pitched male voice, higher than most tenors have to sing mm-hmm. in any right. opera, they're able to sing duets in close harmony with uh, voices, treble voices, with female voices. Mm-hmm. And that was the standard for love duets. I mean, before mm-hmm. uh, the classical era, all love duets were between equal voices. You didn't see love duets between basses and sopranos, for example. Because that coming really into think a of the, the ending the of end. like Popeya and stuff. Yeah. You know, yeah. The, ooh, what a, what a duet. <laughs> it works so much better than when you're coming into an octave. Like, come on, that's not yeah. exactly. there's nothing sexy about yeah. an octave. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, though, one of the reminders of having such a long history of opera is the fact that you can actually see some of that. What we would now consider more uh, freer expression of gender and sexuality did become. A little bit less common into the 19th century, you start to see less pant rolls, less gender ambiguity, um, except in comedies, um, and uh, and and you st- it starts to get a little bit more underground, a little bit more illicit, um, and a little bit more purely subtextual, um, which has its pluses and minuses, um, uh, in, artistically speaking. Obviously, a big minus in terms of like you know living your your truth as a person in the 19th century um but there are still some great examples i think of uh of lgbt representation in this era uh one that i i recognized when i i I, me as an eight-year-old uh living in alabama my whole life the first time i i heard the uh the pearl fishers there's the great duet in there and i and i heard between these two men and I'm like, that's a love duet. That I I couldn't read it as anything else. Um, I don't know if Oliver, Oliver, if you saw that, you know, in your experience, but I don't know. I I can't see other any other way to hear that duet other than as a love duet in my mind. 
I mean, I like watching that duet these days because uh, usually they they have baritones who are willing to expose. Especially their when nipples. Nathan Gunn was making <laughs> yeah. rounds in that role. Yeah. <laughs> Oliver was looking for something else in that yeah. duet, I suppose. But I mean, I've always heard it as a as a friendship duet, honestly. But it's it's so. a friendship that that is so much higher that they that specifically they're swearing that no woman will ever come between them. I mean, yeah, I don't know no, how to. I mean, the, the subtext is very, very. To be honest, like I always thought that I would marry a baritone that we would sing this at our wedding. Uh, but I've <laughs> since changed. I've since changed my strategy to wanting to marry marry a continual player, which is much more. Uh, oh, that's con- very convenient. sexy too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Convenient. <laughs> yeah. Convenient. Exactly. For you. Strategic. Um, yeah. But but even though in the 19th century things got a little bit rougher, um, the culture around opera is still very, very gay. There's a really fun uh, article I found, a sort of a psychological questionnaire from the era. It's called, Are You at All a Uranian? Which is an archaic, ar- archaic German term for uh, a gay person. Um, and one of the questions it, to figure out whether or not you're gay was, are you peculiarly fond of Wagner? Which, as a Wagnerian, I found very delightful. It has a whole section on music and opera specifically, which just goes to show that, you know, when you're when people are talking about homoerotic subtext and uh, gender fluidity and stuff in these old operas, they're really not pulling it out of nowhere. It's always been there. It's always been a part of this art form. Um, and even into the 20th century and, of course, the modern day, you see more and more representation like that. I mean, going back to the pants rolls again with Rose and Cavalier uh, and the overture being just one big sex scene between two women, essentially. Um, uh, and uh, and then eventually if you go up forward a little bit. You have even explicit uh, lesbian and Countess Geschwitz in uh, Lulu. Um, uh, and then the fascists mess everything up as they are want to do. And then you didn't really get that kind of representation back for a little while but still you've got operas like as one now you've got um you know uh, all sorts of explicit representation and of course uh, we're about to talk about with matt um a, a openly gay composers and it's just a it's it's one of those things that's an inherent part of opera and i think the more you realize it the more you realize that it's something to have pride in if you'll forgive the pun so uh Peter Grimes is not an opera that I would call a straightforward story of pride. <laughs> if we're talking about uh, opera as a time capsule and looking at where we've come from, it is a really fantastic representation of where we've come in the lifetime of many people who are were on the vanguard of the liberation movement. Uh, it's an important marker of the history because it was composed by Benjamin Britten, an openly gay composer for Peter Pierce, his openly gay uh, life partner in the 1940s. Uh, and there's a lot of debate about how much of this opera is autobiograph- autobiographical. It's at least semi-autobiographical based on some quotes that Britton wrote about how uh, he realized that he had to write an opera about um, he recognizing him in himself the struggle of the individual against against the masses Mm -hmm. and how the more vicious the society, the more vicious the individual. And so Peter Grimes as a work is a really interesting piece because it is so ambiguous. It's a really allegorical opera that tells the story of a misfit fisherman who lives in a small town in England uh, and is beset by accusations that he is a monster or a menace to society. And the opera really doesn't give you a satisfying answer about what happens in this show. So it's very much left to, up to the audience to interpret as like, as was the case with a lot of queer coding in the mid 20th century. Mm-hmm. Grimes himself is a really difficult character to understand and a harder one to love. And I think that's part of what makes this opera so intriguing and so dramatic. And one that I can come back to again and again, and just find something different depending on the actor playing him, depending on the production, depending on like how you feel that day. Uh, the audience has a lot to think about and hears a lot about Grimes, but you don't actually know very much about him other than that he is very wounded and that he's one cog in a society that doesn't really understand him at all. And while he's misanthropic and maybe even violent, the accusations against him of pedophilia are really more telling of the people in the town than mm-hmm. of, of the character himself. Uh, so I, I brushed past this earlier, but Benjamin Britten is an incredibly important figure for queer representation in opera and classical music. He lived so steadfastly as himself in the 20th century in an era that was not welcoming to people who were different in any other way from the mainstream. And this kind of investigation that he does in really almost all of his works about 
one individual being contrasted against a judgmental and violent society uh, is it just that's one of the reasons why he and Piers are like the godfathers of modern opera so gay. So I want to show a scene from Peter Grimes that happens right at the very beginning of the opera and is, I think, maybe one of the biggest pieces of evidence for the reading of him as a gay man living in England, which is not an interpretation that everyone takes away from it. But like, come on. Come on. Uh, and that that that's the uh, the quote unquote love duet between Peter Grimes and the widowed school teacher Ellen Orford right after the trial scene. Uh, and because I put love in quotation marks, if you're Scare on the podcast only, because <laughs> um, this duet really what it shows is how profoundly not on the same page these two people are. <laughs> well, I mean, you're talking about the great Pleiades, right? No, I'm talking about um, right after the trial when they're doing that acapella duet. Okay, and, and they're they're singing in two different keys. Exactly. Okay, yeah. so. Benjamin Britten is, this was like very much his trick, is that he takes really modern avant-garde classical technique, uh, classical compositional techniques, but makes them sound not so weird. And you kind of have to peel back the layer to figure out what is going on here. And so uh, this clip, if you're listening to the podcast version uh, that we're going to play for you, is comes from the 1969 BBC video recording of the entire opera starring Peter Pierce and Heather Harper uh, and You'll listen to how the the lines don't really line up at all. The melody doesn't really seem to be totally disjoint. It's very beautiful. What both of them are singing is really cool, but it doesn't fit together at all. And it's because they're singing in different keys, like Oliver said. And we were talking about this when we were when we were doing Albert Herring, how you just have to like focus on your own part. <laughs> you white knuckle. Yeah, you memorize your part and you <laughs> exactly. white knuckle until it's over. Yeah. So let's take a listen to that now. Yeah, like everyone was saying, like we were saying before, just the security of musicianship that you need to nail this acapella duet is so striking, uh, just in terms of like technically how difficult it is and also how well it sets up all the tragedy that's to come. And the violins that come in as they finish that last note are going to tell on you if you drifted at all. The uh, the B in LGBT stands for bitonal. <laughs> it doesn't, very and it doesn't stand for Britain? Come bye. on. <laughs> Tonal. Emphasis on the bye. So, <laughs> so I've I've fanboyed over Benjamin Britten as much as I am allowed to, as, as much as they will let me in one piece. Because it's, you know, I could well, talk about Well, someone had to do it because George isn't here, so. <laughs> but I am dying to hear about Ashley's selection. Uh, yes. Now we're going from 
telling veiled stories of queer folks in sort of the middle of the century to an opera of the last decade, which is Ricky Ian Gordon's 27, or what I'm pretty sure the working title was Lesbian Jews in Paris. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Not to sound super reductive, but you know, I love a good bit. You know, I've been leaning on that for the better part of today. So the Opera 27 uh, was commissioned by Opera Theatre of St. Louis to Ricky Ian Gordon as a vehicle for Stephanie Blythe, which he talks about his like excitement at the ability to write something for Stephanie Blythe. And his first thought was immediately to tell the story of Gertrude Stein, or more importantly, the story of the relationship between oh, Gertrude Stein yeah. and her partner, Alice Toklas. So this was, uh, this was originally premiered in 2014. Uh, so the music's written by Ricky and Gordon, the librettist is uh, our buddy Royce Vavrick, uh, and it goes into, you know, their relationship and more importantly, the salons that they hosted at 27 Rue de Fleurieu in Paris, which is where they lived together for most of their lives. Uh, so there's actually a cover of Opera News in 2014 that has the entire premiere cast on the cover. So it's got Stephanie Blythe as Gertrude Stein, Elizabeth Futrell as uh, her partner, Alice Toklas, and Theo Lebo, Tobias Greenhalgh, and Daniel Bradlick, who play everybody else in the show that's not Gertrude. Ooh, it's one Alice. of those. Those um, are always fun. It's Yes, it's a total blast. Uh, and so, and there actually is, there's a recording of this um i cannot remember the record label but you can find it on spotify and it's with the st louis symphony it's with this original premiere cast it is a great recording i will encourage you once now and at the end of my segment to check out that recording it's fantastic uh so what makes it gay insert jokes here uh you know besides this besides the subject besides the badass queer voice that is gertrude stein and the gorgeous love story you've got the gay composer you've got the gay librettist and then you've got this theatrical device where you have these three secondary characters that are playing everybody some of those people are going to be in drag they're playing everybody Mm -hmm. that's like i mentioned everybody that's not gertrude and alice they're playing the paintings the painters the photographers the writers the wives of the genuses the doughboys the soldiers in the world wars and finally the friends. Now, are you guys, are you familiar with this salon that Gertrude and Alice held and how it was basically the kingmaker of modernism mm-hmm. in between mm-hmm. the wars? It's it's absolutely fascinating. There's a really interesting anecdote that actually made it into the opera. I'm pretty sure this is real. Um, so photographer Man Ray was, you know, in this orbit and he was so inspired and he wanted to be, you know, a, a multifaceted artist as it were. So he tried his hand at painting and all of these artists, largely male, all of these writers and these painters, they were desperately craving the sought after approval of Gertrude Stein. You know, <laughs> she, if they, if she liked them, they were fine. They were going to be set. So Man Ray goes and tries his hand at painting and he shows it to Gertrude Stein and she looks at him and she says, you, my dear, are a photographer. <laughs> Which <laughs> crushes him because he was Got already him. known for photography. It's so great. Uh, so the story of this, you know, is, is literally about this gay literary icon in Gertrude Stein, but it's also this snapshot into the love story with Alice, the magic of how they stayed out and somehow safe in a time that wouldn't necessarily seem hospitable you know, two out gay women, you know, to say the least, to say the least. So, so the, um, the story, and I'll talk more about sort of the, the vehicles of the way they tell the story, but basically it's kind of them between during and between the wars. Um, so the scarcity of food in that first world war, how were they making a living? How were they eating? They were Jewish and gay and out next to Nazis during the second world war. Uh, but also it really focuses on sort of the king making power she has with her artistic approval during these salons and how she built a generation of modernism in both literature and in visual art. Um, So let's talk a little bit about the piece itself. It is this really nifty little journey through their life before, during, and after both of these world wars. Again, how did they say stay stay safe, excuse me, beloved and well-fed? Was it her ties, Gertrude Stein's ties to the Vichy French regime? Was it the extensive collection and sale of sacrificial modern art? Was it simply the power of Stein's strength and voice? My vote is all three. So when we're looking at uh, Royce Fabric's libretto, it's, to describe it in one word, it's crisp. In another word, it's funny. It's actually very funny. Uh, he opens the show with, uh, which is also very short. It's like 90 minutes long. Um, he opens with the vision of Alice knitting uh, and in her loneliness after Gertrude Stein died because Alice survived like 20 years after Gertrude's passing. Uh, and he uses that as his departure point to sort of knit together all of these different stories of their life and this salon. And he uses the World Wars one and two as brackets to give the sense of kind of 
who they were, what their struggles were, what made them happy. And of course, because Gertrude Stein is Gertrude Stein, some of her words are, are worked in. This is different than when she worked as a librettist for, say, Virgil Thompson, for things like The Mother of Us All, Four Saints and Three Acts. This is telling her story, but it's not completely in her own words, which I think is mm. really nice because it gives a series of vignettes about her as opposed to just sticking directly to her words, which would tell a very different story. Uh, I'm a sucker for Ricky Ian Gordon, and I won't apologize for it. We stand. <laughs> um, his score for this is, I'm super biased, it's gorgeous. Uh, the orchestrations are just, they're pretty. They're so pretty. And the, the, the vocal lines are very upfront and very brash in their nature. They're still lyrical, but it's, you can really tell a contrast between the vocal lines and the orchestrations. You know, Ricky Ian Gordon, he's, he's a master songwriter. He knows how to set text. And this is just, he's a pretty good mimic too. Yes, exactly. Mm. This is just part of that tradition. This score is lyrical and it's sweet. It's definitely still complex. Um, he's true to the scene and the story, and he adds some little Frenchified neoclassicism. It's very boulangerie. It's a very younger friend of Gertrude Stein's. <laughs> uh, it is clear very much so that this is a labor of love for him. He has written a commission for a singer that he loves, and he's using the words of a writer that he loves. It's no secret that he's a huge fan of Gertrude Stein. This was, of course, commissioned for... Stephanie Blythe, but it's really also just this charming love letter to this badass queer voice. I want more people to explore this sto- uh, the score. The last time this was done, uh, land of 29 or sorry, beginning of 2019. So I hope more companies pick this up as we're opening these doors and starting to have, you know, more productions happen. The clip that I want to share with you guys, first of all, Definitely check out the entire album on Spotify. It's absolutely stunning. You can get through the whole thing in 90 minutes. Um, and again, just the, the pretty and I won't apologize for it nature of the music is, is really personified in this selection from Act 1, Scene 3. The track title is called Back at the Salon, but this is a section of that called The Bells Ring. And this is part of that original cast recording to use Broadway terms, uh, with Stephanie Blythe as Gertrude Stein and Elizabeth Futrell as her partner, Alice. Uh, and it's just about them, you know, having a quiet moment in the salon to celebrate the bells of love that are ringing for them, the bells of love for the art that they're creating and the art world that they're creating. So check it out. So we see in opera history that queerness has always been a part uh, from the castrati and the haute contras and their 
uh, same octave duets, <laughs> which are the sexiest duets. Um, to <laughs> yes, uh, to uh, fake romantic love in uh, Pearl Fishers in the Romantic era and the beginning of the modern era, with a callback to pants rolls with Octavian and the Marshallin having a wonderful morning together with trombones. Uh, and then we get Benjamin Britten, where our first, you know, out gay composer. They're probably Ronaldo Hahn was also gay, but I forget who comes first. Uh, but you know, we know Britten's operas, we don't know Hahn's operas. And then to the modern era, to one of our favorite composers and a very gay subject matter, Ricky Ian Gordon. There you have it. Opera is gay. The end. <laughs> Oliver has spoken. <laughs> yeah. It is law. <laughs> Uh, one thing that is, uh, uh, is not law is, uh, whether or not, uh, Ryan Lochte is going to make it into the Olympics. Oh, um, he's not. That's done. <laughs> he, unfortunately, he finished seventh in the Olympic trials, uh, wow. as, as did Cody Simpson. But, you know, for me, I know we talked a little bit about, uh, Matina's picks in track and field, but let me tell you. Shikari Richardson, this is her world. We are just living in it. She is the 21-year-old phenom that's coming in and also also queer, hooray, also fabulous nails and fabulous hair. Not that that has to do with being queer. They just are fabulous. She's very much the, like the Jackie Joyner Kersey, the Flojo of now. That is who she is. And she is unapologetic and so damn fast. And I'm really excited to watch her. Um, really quickly, did you guys hear about, and this has an opera twist to it too. Um, did you hear about this substance, uh, substance crackdown that's happening in Major League Baseball? No, tell me about it. <laughs> I, I should know my audience. Uh, so, okay, so today... <laughs> Today is the very first day uh, of sort of this new rule that's going into effect in Major League Baseball. Uh, pitchers can be ejected and suspended for using illegal foreign substances to doctor their baseball. So basically there's, mm. you know, there's this culture in baseball where they put sticky, sticky substances, sometimes slippery, but mostly <laughs> sticky on baseball so that the pitches will spin faster. Um, and it causes, you know, them to, to go faster, to go faster at, at the batters. But now umpires are going to be able to examine the players right there on the field. They can do it between innings. They can do it between batters. If anybody's found with any sticky substance, like this thing called spider tack that a lot of them use, they can automatically face a 10 day suspension and uh they can't be replaced on the roster so it's gonna be really interesting to see how this plays out in major league baseball i was trying to figure out a parallel on things that would like increase spin to be like an illegal advantage (laughs) for opera but then i was like well a a lot of the female singers have to wear corsets and that kind of increases spin it's true but i'm trying to figure out what illegal substance we could be using in opera to like give people a better advantage I feel like if you're doing like a really avant-garde production, you can really just kind of like put them on a centrifuge and just spin them around real fast. <laughs> there are these people who use these sprays that numb their 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 voices. That the numb chloroseptic, their... yeah. yeah, yeah. Like mm. if they're feeling swollen, you know, just like ignore the pain, just sing through it. <laughs> <laughs> can you imagine the opera police coming in and busting, like you know, Isabel Leonard to call another singer back to be like, "Sorry, ma'am." You got that chloroseptic. You got to go. Your cover's Let me on. smell your breath, Islen. <laughs> Sorry, Isabel. Sorry, Ryan Lochte. We got to go to the two-minute drill. This just in the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. South Korean baritone Gi Hoon Kim has won the BBC Cardiff Singer of the World Main Prize, singing arias from Barbara Seville, Tannhäuser, and Andrea Chenier. The other finalists included English mezzo-soprano Claire Barnett-Jones, Austrian soprano Christina Gonch, Georgian mezzo Natalia Kutatelaja, and South African soprano Masabane Cecilia Ragwanasha. Congratulations also go to Ranguana Shah, who was announced as the winner of the BBC Cardiff Singer of the World Song Prize. Other finalists for the Song Prize were Christina Gonski Kim, Welsh soprano Sarah Guilford, and Madagascan baritone Michael Arivoni. The competition was not without offstage drama as soprano Alfhedur Erla Guthmund's daughter had to withdraw from the competition after receiving a track and trace notification, which was related to her travel from Iceland. In recognition of this unfortunate setback, Guthmund's daughter has been invited to return to the competition in 2023. More awards! The Fedora Opera Prizes have announced their 2021 winners. Awards went to upcoming productions of Sivan Eldar's Like Flesh from the Opera de Lille, 
and Finola Merivale's virtual reality opera Out of the Ordinary from the Irish National Opera. The Tulio Seraphin competition has announced Nina Solodonovnikova, Solodonov, Solodonovnikova, 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 Daria Augustan, Franco Klisovich, Martina Licari, and Gloria Giurgola as its winners. <laughs> and their exciting prize, they get to co-star in a production of Mozart's Mitridate at the festival Vicenza this September. That's a major award. <laughs> no awards, however, for racism. Scottish Opera officially withdrew its nomination for a South Bank Sky Arts Award after being criticized for using Yellowface in its 2020 production of Nixon in China. After being called out on Twitter by a member of Parliament, Scottish Opera apologized for the misrepresentation, quote, caused by the stage makeup. South Bank Sky Arts also added to the apology for the offense caused by the nomination. The Life of Luciano Pavarotti has become the setting of a new musical created by former English National Opera director John Barry and film director Michael Gracie. The production will feature Pavarotti's original recordings, but won't cast anyone in his role. His widow, Nicoletta Mantovani, has famously turned down any requests for stage rights to her husband's story, but gave this one a green light. In trade news, Michele Mariotti has been named music director of Teatro dell'Opera di Roma. He'll start that position in November 9, uh, 2022 and will conduct three operas per season. Friend of the show, Anthony Roth Costanzo, has been named Artist-in-Residence for the New York Philharmonic's 2021-2022 season. His contributions will include Authentic Selves, The Beauty Within, a project that explores identity, and the continuation of co-presentations with the New York Philharmonic bandwagon. That's the bus. <laughs> Portland Opera has named mezzo-soprano Jasmine Johnson the inaugural Ensemble Leaders Fellow for its upcoming season. The fellowship is meant to provide opportunities for artists of color, which General Sue, excuse me, which General Director Sue Dixon hopes will be an investment in the company's future. Exit stage right, American soprano Gianna Rolandi has died. Following a successful 20-year performing career of coloratura repertoire, she became the first director of vocal studies for Lyric Opera of Chicago's Ryan Opera Center in 2001. She was the program's director through 2013 and continued to teach privately after retirement from Lyric. She is survived by her husband, Lyric's music director, Sir Andrew Davis, and her son, composer and singer Ed Fraser Davis. Violinist Jean Lamont, who led Toronto's famed Tafelmusik Baroque Orchestra for more than three decades and served as its music director emerita since 2014, died from cancer in Victoria, BC at the age of 71. And on this day, June 21st in 1816, it was the first performance of Les Fêtes de Citerre, an opera ballet which uh, brought Spontini, Kreutzer, Persuis, and Berton together on that collaboration. I have no <laughs> idea who some of those people are. Truly in, the Avengers of the Baroque yes. opera world. In 1868, it was the first performance of a little-known opera called Die Meisterzinger von Nürnberg. In 1899, it was the birth of Czech composer Pavel Haas in Borno. In 1928, American soprano Judith Raskin was born. In 1936, it was the birth of English tenor John Wakefield. In 1942, Reynaldo Hans' opera comique Louis de Jeunes Filles premiered in Paris. We say happy birthday to American mezzo-soprano and sometimes soprano Jennifer Larmore, born this day in 1958. In 1986, Lee Hoiby's The Tempest premiered at Des Moines Metro Opera. And in 1994, it was the first performance of Phyllis Glass's Philip Glass, your Phillips Glasses, your Phillips Glasses <laughs> opera, Phillips Glasses opera. <laughs> La Belle et la Bête, also known as the Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> and that's your two-minute drill. Oh, 
You just heard Gianna Orlandi singing the cabaletta to Lucia's Cavatina Rundava nel Silencio, and that came from a New York City opera telecast from 1982. Uh, that kind of flexibility and charm in her singing was really a hallmark of her stage presence throughout her career, and you should definitely check that whole recording out on video. The variations that she puts into the repeat of those verses are wild. <laughs> and uh, she sings the entire opening of the Cantilena looking over her shoulder. <laughs> it's so great. And uh, I mean, her tone was just so good. You can hear her, you know, putting her tone like right on the edge of her teeth, just like so forward and so round. And I mean, I've never heard her in in the house, but just even on recording, it sounds so gorgeous. I wish I could have heard it. And we have seen so many tributes um, because we're in Chicago where she had a big impact on the singing scene here. Mm. So many singers who came through the Ryan Opera Center who studied with her uh, were really shocked uh, by this news. And there's a lot of sadness in Chicago right now. Yeah, she um, she influenced a lot of singers even that didn't necessarily get the chance to work with her, like this one. Um, there is on my refrigerator a letter from Gianna Rolandi and it has been there for the last decade um, because of the experience that I had at Lyric with her. Uh, and the nutshell is that I, um, months, not even two months after my father's passing, I was in a really rough spot. I had fully forgotten that I had put in an application to Lyric's Ryan Center. Uh, I had forgotten a lot of things at that point because, you know, when you're post-loss, you're just in a haze. Uh, and I got a call that morning, the morning of the audition saying that they had room for me if I wanted to come mm -hmm. in and do an audition. And I told them no, uh, because I couldn't even, I could barely put on clothes and be in the world, let alone like go sing. And my, one of my mentors at the time was like, you're nuts, go put on a dress and just go. And I, you know, I went in wholly unprepared. I took my whole book, but I was like, I guess I'm just, I mean, it was, I was, I was in like a grief fever dream, um, but I went in and I sang and all of the singers before me had been going in and doing like a piece, a half a piece. I sang my entire book for Jana, uh, and then she asked me some really lovely questions and then asked me to sing things again. And I, the kindness she showed me in that moment, she had no idea that I needed that kindness, um, but I did. And the fact that I was able to go and do that, that forever will be like a mark of the pinnacle of my strength that I was able to get through that. And so the letter that she wrote to me afterwards is, is like a hallmark of that. It's like, I, I, I did that. She recognized it. I will forever remember her and be grateful to her for her kindness and her artistry and her guidance that day. So this one, this one hit me hard. Um, but yeah, there's a letter from Jana on, on my fridge and I'll never take it down. That's an incredible story and she will be sorely missed. Thanks for sharing it, Ashley. And we also remember Jean Lamont, um, whose affiliation with opera is that she was basically the concert master of so many opera atelier performances, mm -hmm. including uh, a really dramatic performance at Versailles um, in France right after a, a terrorist attack, uh, which put historic sites in Paris and Versailles into lockdown. But the Royal Opera of Versailles decided to proceed with the production as an act of solidarity, a refusal to be terrified in the face of terror. And that memory comes from our friends at Opera Atelier, Marshall Pankowski and Jeanette Lajeunesse Zing. Um, and so, yeah, I have a lot of uh, Tafel music recordings. And I, as a radio professional, I get to play a lot of Tafel music and mm -hmm. definitely one of the great ensembles that does music that I care about very much so it was a sad day yesterday for um, yeah. important women leaders uh, leaving on a lighter note uh, a lot of awards going around and I think uh, Matt Cummings wins the award for actually pronouncing the name <laughs> correctly I mean let's Oliver <laughs> does yeah. not win that award honorable mention for effort <laughs> Uh, you know what I, I respect about you, Oliver, is that you didn't quit. You just kept going. You kept hammering. I mean, if they were all the it. same nationality, you can get into like a rhythm with like you how get in the, the zone. Yeah, yeah. Right, but right, when right. the when like singer of the world, forget it. You know. Yeah. Yeah. I'll never no. work. I'm not a Bob Costas. You know. And and you uh, know which. Oh, go ahead, Matt. Sorry. I was just gonna say. You know what else we're gonna forget? Hopefully, finally, is Yellowface. Oh, oh God. God. <laughs> 
in Scottish opera. I mean, the quotes from this story, just those excuses were stale Blame the makeup. years ago. Talking to the Telegraph and saying, oh, well, we won't be able to do Nixon in China because where will we find all these Chinese singers? Come on. There's that... a whole country full of them. It's Me... called China. <laughs> There's a lot of singers from China. Yeah, they are looking for work. They, oh yeah, no that that one really it kind of got me. I mean, at least they at least they pulled out. You know, at I least know. they pulled themselves out of the competition. Like it could have been so much more frustrating if they, you know, because we have seen in the in the light of some sort of examples of racism in opera and in other places, people doubling down and not admitting, you know, oh, we and kinda, getting plotted you know. for it even. Yeah, but, exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you know, half a point to Scottish National Opera for themselves out of the prize consideration especially since you know it's a relatively new opera like you don't even have like the oh it's just always oh, it's always been done uh, this they came out in, like 1985 that's within living memory for everyone ex- except me because i'm a baby uh okay i was not born in 1985 either but you don't need to point my figure okay <laughs> as youths on the panel might not remember um who who is excited about this uh Pavarotti musical and who's extremely nervous that the director of The Greatest Showman might do to Pavarotti what he did to Jenny Lind. This this Jenny Lind slander. I don't know if you have seen the the thing, but it's infuriating. I was like, what, what is your ta- problem What's the Jenny with Lind? Je- I'm sorry. They She's turned her a into villain. a squeltress. <laughs> yeah, it, they make her a villain in, oh. uh, in It's Jared. just like, She's a lovely person. She donated everything to charity, she's and then all of a sudden she's having a, an affair, and she's evil. Okay. And it's like well, I think we need to clarify that for the audience. I didn't. They didn't read the story yet. I, so. um, uh, all the kids will be will be hip to the Greatest Showman. <laughs> the uh, Greatest Showman. Oh, the Greatest Showman makes yeah. Jenny Lind a villain. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. I thought there you were saying is. that you already. <laughs> so the Greatest Showman. The relationship is because we didn't make that clear. Is that the, the director of uh, one of the co-directors of this Pavarotti musical? Also mm. directed the show, The Greatest Showman. Yes, yes, yes. Well, that so was in the original copy, we're, we're, but we're you up, said it, Oliver. Yeah, I, it's, it's, it's just, right there. If you if you notice, I'm highlighting <laughs> it now in the doc. You can read it if okay. you want. Right, 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 right. I'm just hoping okay. that this makes it full circle back into a movie, so that we can finally get Glenn Close's jawline cast as Joan Sutherland as it deserves. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's the dream. That's the dream. Good call, bad call. Coming up now. Good call, bad call. On Opera Box Score. All right. Good call, bad call. Oliver, what have you got for me? Oh, well, in the next edition of The New Yorker, which is available online now, um, Alex Ross celebrates a return to live opera with his new column, Stravinsky's Plague Opera, including a glowing review for Ellie Opera's Oedipus Rex, which stars mm-hmm. Janae Bridges, Morris Robinson, and friend of the show, Russell Thomas. And in the same column... Alex Ross praises, quote, young director James Dara. Drink. <laughs> we had to get that name in somewhere the show. Uh, and the inventor production and cast of Les Enfants Terribles by your Phillips glasses at, <laughs> yes. at Long Beach Opera. So check out that column and kudos to our friends, uh, Russell Thomas and James Dara. Matt Cummings. I don't know if anyone but me has watched the morning show on Apple TV Plus, but you definitely should. The cast is absolutely insane. It's I I mean Billy Crudup in it is like my far and away my favorite. But is like, there a how new can season of it, or one? is this like it, an there's old... there's one coming up in the new okay. season, and Juliana Margulies is joining it, so I'm okay. double excited. But I've been watching it just this past week, and you know it really hit home thinking about a couple of episodes that we've done because it's based so much on like what went on at the Today Show and in the Me Too movement. And, you know, some things just stay relevant. Ashley Hardgrave. Well, if you don't have Apple TV, find somebody that's got an HBO Max login and start watching Hacks. It is amazing. (laughs) Jeep Smart is a national treasure. Also, I want to turn the storyline of Hacks into an opera. Number one, because I think it would be great. And number two, because I don't think enough operas are set in Las Vegas. So start watching Hacks. (laughs) Librettists and composers, call me. Let's get this project going. Well, since uh, George isn't here, I can finally do a good call. Unfortunately, I don't have one. That's <laughs> it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell, who can be found at normwaddell.com. 
On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. On Twitter and Instagram, we're at Opera Box Score. Help us deepen our bench of listeners by liking and sharing our social media posts. Email us your hot takes at operaboxscore at gmail.com. Subscribe to our podcast on Stitcher or just favorite our show on Apple Podcasts. The view and opinions expressed on Opera Box Score are solely those of the show's creative team. Any rebroadcast, reproduction, or other use of the accounts of this show without the express written consent of Opera Box Score is totally fine because George isn't here to stop you. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. Our audio and video video editor is, well, me. Uh, from your ho- co-hosts Matt Cumming and, a- and Ashley Hardgrave, I'm Weston Williams asking you to continue the conversation about opera as you wash the glitter out of your hair. We're back with an all-new show next week when you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more pro athletes going gay, hopefully. Join us.